You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you have exalted the crucified one, the Lord Jesus, that you have raised him from the dead and exalted him in heaven and earth. We thank you that He is here present with us now by the power of the Spirit. So we pray now, Spirit, that you would inspire, illumine the reading and preaching of your word, that we would encounter the risen Lord Jesus today and be moved and changed by him. We pray this in his great name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. I'm Corey Widmer. I'm the lead pastor here at Third. I am not the Corey Widmer that sent you an email yesterday asking you for gift cards uh, I know like a hundred or more of you received that email. That was not me, and I hope you didn't do that. If you did buy gift cards and you'd like to give them to me, you can do so after the service. I'm just kidding. Please don't do that. Um, well, welcome, as Rick said, to Easter Tide. This is our church calendar that we use here at Third to remind us of how we keep time differently as followers of Jesus. Um, as Rick already said, um, Lent is 40 days, but Eastertide is 50 days. Grace is always greater than sin. It's longer than, than, than our need for repentance. And what we need 50 days to really celebrate the staggering implications of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, one of those implications that I briefly mentioned last week in the sermon is Jesus's availability, the simple availability of Jesus, that we do not as Christians worship and follow a dead, respectable religious teacher of the past, but that we follow and worship a resurrected Lord of the present. And what's astonishing about this is that he actually gives us um, his own presence with us so that we are never alone. And so this series that we're starting today is going deep into that implication of Jesus' truth, his promise that he is always with us. He's always with you. We're going to do that by looking at three or four chapters in the book of John, uh, John chapters 14 through 17. These are some very beautiful chapters. Um, They are the words of Jesus. They are only recorded by John, not by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And in all sorts of different ways, Jesus is making an astonishing promise to us. We may think that as 21st century Christians, um, we have kind of uh, at a disadvantage because unlike the early first disciples who actually had the physical presence of Jesus with them, we no longer have the physical presence of Jesus with us. But Jesus in this sermon basically says, actually, it's not you who have the bum deal, it's them. Because with them, I was physically restricted in my own body, but with you, the believers who come after me, I will give the gift of the Spirit so that I am fully present and available to you in every part of the world, at every time, in every place. I am always with you. That is one of the greatest gifts of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we're gonna be exploring um, that gift deeply as we study these chapters over the next eight weeks. So let's um, turn to John chapter 14, as Jesus begins this sermon there. Um, You can open your Bibles or just open an app or just listen as I read it. John chapter 14, verses one through four. Hear God's word. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. When our oldest daughter was around eight or nine, uh, we had one of those busy Saturdays where birthday parties, soccer games, that sort of thing. And Sophie didn't normally do this, but she just decided some point that she was tired and she just went upstairs to her room to take a nap. Um, neither myself nor Sarah knew that she had done this. And as we scurried around going our different ways, both sort of assumed that the other had her. Um, and so we both, first I left and assuming Sarah had her and then Sarah left assuming I had her and, and we were gone out of the house. And at some point she woke up and walked around the house. Mom, dad. <laughs> Called a few times, waited around for a while. There's no note. There's no nothing. Nobody's home. Nobody's there. Uh, and so she decided she better do something. So she left the house. She started walking down the street, knocking on neighbors' doors, asking, have you seen my mom and dad? Eventually, I think it actually it was Bill Hall. Bill, do you remember this? Was it you? Who came to Bill's door and Bill said, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Let's figure out what's wrong. Bill called me, called Sarah. We were all reunited. It was happy. And unfortunately, like for the next nine writing assignments at school, Sophie wrote about this. Uh, and and uh, Sarah and I did not receive that year, the Parent of the Year Award. Um, but I think this speaks to something that I spoke briefly about last week, and that is um, that one of our deep down darkest fears, maybe a fear that we generate when we're little children, uh, is that we are alone and that we are abandoned and that the house is empty. I think one of the reasons for this, if you were here earlier and heard Lisa's wonderful talk, Lisa Olds, she talked about how the fact that as humans, we are deeply made for connection, for relationship, for communion. We were made for this. Andy Crouch writes, I love this. He says, recognition is the first human quest. Andy writes, uh, points out that when an infant is born, if it's a typical delivery without any complications for the baby, there's usually a bit of crying, but then there's what doctors call the quiet alert. The quiet alert. A newborn can't see very well. You know, it can only see about 8 to 12 inches in front of its face. But if you've ever been there and seen this, its eyes will be wide open and it will be calm and searching. And what is it looking for? It's looking for a face that is gazing back at it. And as soon as it sees a face, it locks on. The baby is fixing its eyes on the one who fixes its eyes on her. Kurt Thompson, Christian psychiatrist, says that this initial desire for a face really doesn't stop. He writes this, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. We're looking for someone looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. That's all we want, recognition, communion, connection companionship, communion. And so it makes sense that if this is one of the deepest, innate, God-created human longings, right, for connection, communion, that it makes sense that one of our deepest fears is abandonment and being left all alone. And I think we're getting a taste of that fear that the disciples are feeling in chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says to them, real starkly, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
And that word troubled there is a very strong Greek word. It's peresis, though, which means like great distress or great affliction as if someone is experiencing a trauma. Why are the disciples so troubled? Why are they so distressed? Well, the reason is, is because Jesus has been telling them for months now that he's going to leave them, that he's going away and that he's not gonna be with them anymore. And they just don't get it. What? What? You're leaving, you're, you're abandoning us? You're leaving us? And on top of that, if you look back in chapter 13, Jesus has just told them that one of the 12 is gonna betray them. And Judas at this point has gone off into the night. And then he's just told Peter, the rock himself, that he is going to abandon and deny Jesus three times. And so these disciples are just, their whole worlds are falling apart. Their foundations are crumbling, right? Things have been going so well with Jesus. They thought they were on the way to the kingdom in Jerusalem. And now suddenly everything they thought they could count on is falling apart and they are feeling overwhelmed, alone, and abandoned. Now, before I, want, I move on, I just want us to kind of go into that, that, that feeling for a moment. I, Jesus speaks to people who feel overwhelmed, distressed, abandoned, and alone. I wonder if there's anybody here today who feels that way in any measure. There's a lot of reasons why humans can end up feeling abandoned, alone, or overwhelmed distressed. Death can make you feel that way. A number of you have had a parent die. We've just heard of one of them today. Um, having a parent die can make you feel orphaned, unmoored. Some of you had a spouse or a child or a friend die, and the absence of this person in your life makes you feel like you have a wound that will never be healed and a hole that will never be filled. It can make you feel alone. Maybe something has happened to you that is just overwhelming, a challenge with a child, a dramatic change to your health, something that has like turned your marriage or your vocation upside down. And these things like this can make you feel abandoned because the God that you thought was so near and so kind does not at all appear to be near or kind and you're wondering where he is. That can make you feel alone. Or maybe it's the state of the world. Have you all noticed the state of the world? Have you noticed how chaotic it is and how up? upside down, it seems, and how at times it feels like that the driver has fallen asleep or the driver has gone out to lunch, or maybe there isn't even a driver at all. Maybe in this house of the world that we live in is actually empty and nobody's home. I know I'm sounding a little bit dramatic, but the reason I'm saying these things and I want to just stop here for a little bit is because I'm your pastor and I know you and I've talked with you and I know that there is someone in this, there's, there's, there's people in every single place that I've just named in this room today. And I'm guessing that there is a whole lot more than I know about and that you could ever guess. There are so many reasons why human beings can end up feeling abandoned, afraid, overwhelmed, and alone. And what's beautiful, guys, is that Jesus speaks to us, speaks to them, speaks to you, speaks to me. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be distressed. How can Jesus say that to us, to me, to you, to them? How can Jesus say that? Because he promises something. And what does he promise? Well, he says it right here. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. A place. Jesus says he's going to give us a place. What is it about humans and our need for a place? Right? Why, why are humans so connected to a place? Why do people spend so much money creating, building, preserving, renovating places for themselves? Why do people spend so much money going back to the places that were important to them? Why is it that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were expelled from their place, expelled from the garden, that it seems apparently 
the greatest possible curse is to be homeless, a homeless wanderer. Well, the reason I think is because home, home as a place is so vital to our being as humans. Home, what do you think about when you think of home? Home is not just a a physical structure. Um, Home is not geography. You all know what home is. Home is belonging. Home is a place where you're totally accepted, where you can be yourself. When you think of home, what do you think of? Picture it in your mind right now. I'm, I'm picturing an open door and a light inside and a warm roaring fire and walking inside and there being delicious smells of my very favorite foods and everybody stands up in the room to welcome you with joy and welcomes you in and sits you in your favorite chair and you rest in your home and you belong. Home is where we're known, right? Where we're recognized, where we find the person who's looking for us where we belong. And and we know that people who never find a home behave like wounded animals, right? Lashing out, living in anger, have never really felt belonging. Paul Tournier, the Swiss physician, said, children who never experience or find a home, a place of belonging, grow up carrying a fundamental incapacity for attachment. So when we long for home, you know, what we're longing for is not a geographic place. We're longing for belonging a place where we're known and loved and deeply connected and not abandoned. That's what we all are longing for. So I just think, don't you, that it is so beautiful and glorious that to people who feel abandoned and alone and displaced, Jesus says, I give you a place. I'm giving you a place that is home, a place where you belong, a place where you're connected and and included, a place where you are always home, where you can always be found and always loved. What is the place, friends? What is the place that Jesus promises to give us? he says it, my father's house, my father's house. That's the place. Well, what is that? Well, as simple as this sounds, um, there's a lot of disagreement about what Jesus is talking about here. And the, the question really is around this. Um, is the, my father's house, is that a future place that Jesus is promising, like heaven or someplace after death that we will be able to be belong with him and belong with God the father? Is that what he's talking about somewhere in the future? Or is Jesus talking about a place we can know in the present, in the here and now, somewhere we can find long and belonging, love and belonging in the present life? So which is it, the future or the present? And I read so many commentaries this week trying to figure out what people think about this. And after all that study, I think the answer is yes. Um, in other words, I think it encompasses all of that, both the future and the present. And here's why, here's why I think so. Let me explain. First of all, the future. I do think that Jesus is speaking of the future in part. The language Jesus is using here was very common language that many Jewish rabbis used to talk about the future hope, the world beyond death. And I think that's probably the most basic way the early disciples would have heard it. Jesus does not often speak about life after death in the book of John. And when he does, it's it's very basic and full of metaphor. But what's clear from this is that it is a place, right? We know from the resurrection of Jesus, we know from the other New Testament writings, we know from the book of Revelation that the Christian hope, the the hope that we are ultimately yearning for at the end of all things is not some disembodied existence in the clouds where we're kind of wisping around like spirits and playing harps or something. That's not the Christian hope, nor is the Christian hope sort of being dropped into the ubiquitous sea of existence like many Eastern religions teach. 
what the Christian hope is, is a place, a new resurrected world. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, built a fire and sat down and gave his disciples bread and fish and ate with them and they knew him and they loved him and they embraced him and they held him, right? The resurrected world will be as real as Jesus's resurrected self, real, concrete, beautiful, and glorious. It's a place, a place where you eat, a place where you love, a place where you swim, a place where you play, a place where you learn, a place where you work, a place where you relate to one another. There's a concreteness about it. That's the future hope of believers. That's the new heavens and the new earth that Revelation 21 speaks about. What it will be like, I do not know. The Bible only speaks in images. But here's what I know. Spring is beautiful right now, isn't it? It is glorious. And I just know that in this world, with all of its seas and canyons and flowers and valleys and peaks and immensities and infinities with all of its glory and all of its beauty, if this is the kind of world that God gives to people who reject him, think about what the world will be that he creates for his friends, right? Just think about what it will be. I'll think about just like a blade of grass and how redeemed and glorious and sharp and beautiful it will be that you want to lay down and just meditate on a blade of grass for a million years, not with just five senses, but a hundred. Just think about the world that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has promised and will give as the ultimate place of home. Jesus says, that's the future place I will give to my family, to be the home where you've always longed for, the love you've always wanted, the life you always craved, the beauty you always yearned for, a place we're made whole, where we are finally dwelling with God in deep connection and with one another. And you know what that makes me think? No wonder we're so dang restless. No wonder we never feel fully at home. No matter how great you decorate your house with as many Instagram pictures that you post about it, or no matter how beautiful the river house is that you build, or no matter how rich the company is that you gather around the table, we will always be restless for home because we live in the shadowlands. We live in a cursed and broken world and our hearts yearn for the day where we will be glorified and eternally happy in the world made right when we are finally home. That's what Jesus' resurrection has secured for you. And let me just say this before I move on, that when you know that the place of true belonging is the new creation, you won't be as tempted to find your lasting peace and presence and joy in the here and now. You know, a park is a lovely place to visit and walk through, but it's a lousy place to live. You know what I mean? This is a metaphor, y'all. It's a metaphor. (laughs) Um, Your work, your relationships, your possessions, your money, all these things are good things, but they're not home. You can't live there. You can't find your deepest longings fulfilled there. And when you try to find your deepest place of joy in them, you end up homeless, right? Why? Because you're stuck, you're trapped in this life. If all the happiness you ever know will be in this life, man, you are trapped. Because if something goes wrong with your life, that's all you got. If something destroys your health or destroys your wealth or destroys your dreams or destroys your happiness, you are sunk. But knowing that our true and lasting hope is in the life of the world to come, oh my goodness, what does it do for you? It gives perspective, it gives resilience, it gives patience, it gives you the capacity to handle hardship, it gives perspective to grapple with suffering, it gives the freedom to live lightly, investing in the right things that actually matter. See, that's the first lens here. Jesus is promising a new creation, a place of home where we will finally experience deep belonging forever. So there's part of this, it's the future, 
But that's, I believe, not the only thing Jesus is saying, because if that were all it was, then he would just be telling us to suck it up and wait around until that final blessed day. But as you'll see, that is not, that is far from what Jesus is saying. He's also talking about the present. The Father's house, here's a little quiz, class. The Father's house is a phrase that Jesus has used before in the Gospel of John. Does anybody remember where we heard Jesus use the phrase, the Father's house, before? Bill, do you remember? Oh, man, Bill. <laughs> it was in the temple. It was in the cleansing of the temple. Does anybody know that? I'll give you, I'll give, oh, good job. I'll give you a dollar after the service. Um, it was in the cleansing of the temple. Jesus was angry and he yelled, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? So Jesus uses the phrase, father, my father's house, to refer to what? The temple. Because the temple is the place where God and humanity meet. It's the place where God and humanity and their relationship is mediated. It's the place where sin is forgiven and the priests offer atonement for the sin of the people. And Jesus' whole point in the cleansing the temple was what? You don't need this temple anymore. Why? Because I'm here and I'm the fulfillment of the temple. I've come to fulfill the sacrificial system, to fulfill the priesthood. I am the one now in whom God and humanity meet and are finally reconciled. Jesus, in dying and rising from the dead, fulfills the entire temple system, and he becomes the place where God and humanity can finally be deeply connected in one again. And so what does this mean? It means that even now, long before death, long before that final new creation, when we will be one with God, that long before then, already we can have deep union with God through Jesus because he is the temple. Already we can experience the connection with God that we were made for in and through Jesus and his spirit. We can already dwell with God long before we get to the new world. Does that make sense? Here's a great quote from one of my favorite authors, Leslie Newbegin. He says this way better than I could. Please listen. If you can ignore me, just listen to him, okay? The Father's house is not a building made with hands, nor is it another world beyond death. It is that new dwelling place of God in the Spirit, which is constituted by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus will inaugurate a new possibility. Listen to this, namely, that while we are still on the way, we will have a place where we can already taste the joy of the journey's end, the joy of a lover's meeting, the joy of being with the Lord. Does this make sense to you all? Jesus is saying, look, I'm going away. I'm gonna die, I'm gonna rise again, I'm gonna ascend and now be at the right hand of the Father, but I'm gonna give you the Spirit and through that, it'll be a new dwelling place so that I can be with you right now. Before your death, before the new creation, we have a place of home, a place of rest with Jesus at every point along our journey. This is what it makes me think of. Um, a few summers ago, Sarah went on an amazing hike called the Tour de Mont Blanc, which is a trek through the mountains of Italy and France and Switzerland, a hundred mile trek through the mountains. And along the way, there's these wonderful things called refugios, which is Italian for refuge. And essentially they are mountain huts along the journey, accessible only by foot. And they offer a place of refuge, of home, of warm bed, delicious food, probably good wine because they're Italians. And I love this because it's like Jesus is saying, as you trek through the world, as you move towards that new creation, that place of ultimate home, along the way, you can find home in me. I am the refugio. Right? I am the place of welcome, rest, belonging, where you can already taste the good wine 
and the joy of the journey's end. As you journey towards home, you can find your home already in me. At every point in the journey, y'all, at every point, you can remain in him, abide with him, live with him, commune with him. As Jesus says later in this chapter, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them. And we, that is God the Father and Jesus through the Spirit, will come to them and make our home with you. You see this astonishing promise of the resurrection, y'all, that Jesus has ascended. He's given us his spirit. So now you can actually live everyday life in your ordinary ups and downs in deep union with the Holy Trinity so that every moment, no matter how dark, no matter how scary, no matter how sad, no matter how steep is the trail, no matter how dark are the cliffs, no matter how sideways the wind is blowing or how terribly the rain is pouring, we are at home. We have a place. We are never alone. I am always with you, Jesus says. That's the gift. So let me just close with two applications, one for our church and one for you personally as an individual. First, for our church, the place that Jesus creates for us is a home. It's a home for all of us. It's a collective home. He says, in my house are how many rooms? Many rooms. It's for lots of people. The vision that Jesus gives us of the new world is one in which all of us are dwelling together, deeply connected to God, deeply connected to each other, right? Finding a place of belonging. Have you ever had someone truly know you? I mean, like really deeply look into you, see you all the way to the bottom, even the stuff that you try to hide, and not just see you, but receive you and rejoice in you. Have you ever had that happen? It is a rare human experience. And when it does, it is beautiful. And Jesus is promising that in the new world, all of our relationships will be like, not just our relationship with each other, but our relationship with God himself. That Jesus is making a world in which perfect love and unity will bind our hearts together. And while we can never experience that perfectly now, friends, now through Jesus in his spirit, we are called, this is part of what the church is called to do, to create that community of belonging and connectedness with each other. That's what Lisa was speaking about at the 10 o'clock hour. The way that we listen to each other, are curious with each other's stories, the way that we make space for each other's pain and not try to fix each other, but give each other space to be known. The way that we extend grace to each other, the way that we deeply connect with one another, we create that kind of community of belonging. Also, y'all, there are many people who don't feel at home, but who feel very, very homeless and spiritually homeless. There's um, people who have been deeply wounded by the church, people who have made terrible mistakes, people who have been abused, uh, people in the LGBTQ community, uh, people who are on the outside for various reasons, who for some reason feel like that God doesn't see them, God doesn't love them, and they're not welcomed by Jesus. And part of the calling of the church, friends, is to strive to be a place of belonging, communicating the love and the welcome of Jesus to, to people who for any reason may feel abandoned or lost or alone in our world. That's part of our calling, to be that place of home for others in this dark and lonely world. Right? That's the first thing. That's our community application. Now, let me just give you a personal application. Jesus gives a command, don't let your heart be troubled. It's a command. There's an old Bob Newhart skit where Bob Newhart is a therapist and someone is explaining their, all their problems and he just keeps saying, well, here's what you need to do. Stop it. Stop it. Terrible therapist. And at first glance, it seems like Jesus is being a terrible therapist here, right? He's just saying, your heart's troubled? Stop it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. <laughs> like, 
And uh, I can tell you, as someone who has struggled with chronic depression and anxiety, <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work to just stop it. So what is Jesus offering here? Well, we know this now from the practice of neurobiology, that our, we don't change unless our minds change, unless we take beneath all of our actions and behaviors is a cognitive habit. And behind all of your anxieties are a lie. And I think that lie is that you're alone and that you're by yourself and that it's only up to you to face all your problems and it's only up to you to fix your kids and it's only up to you to fix the dilemmas that you face in life. So much of our anxiety springs out of the lie that you were alone. And so if we're gonna obey Jesus to not be troubled, we need to not just listen to the command, we need to listen to his promises. What he's offering us is his presence. He's saying to you, you are never alone. I am with you. And not just believe that promise, but practice that promise. That's what we're going to be learning in the coming weeks, how to practice the truth that Jesus is always with me. I can abide in him like a, like a branch on a vine. I can live with him. I can commune with him. I can abide with him. I can practice the presence of Jesus in everyday life, rejecting fear, rejecting anxiety, receiving the great truth that I am not alone. He is always with me. So here's just one little practice. Here's a little homework for you for this week. When you feel troubled, as you feel anxious or alone, I want you to pause, take a few breaths, maybe acknowledge that you're perhaps believing a lie, that you are all alone. And here's a little prayer that I've been praying this week. You can do it too. In you, I am loved. With you, I am home. Just a short little prayer. You can say it under your breath. You can say it while driving. You can say it while meeting. You can say it in silence. Jesus, in you, I am loved. With you, I am home. In you, I am loved. With you, I am home. Here is the good news. Jesus is risen. We are never alone. If it is true that we are always looking for someone looking for us, the good news is that Jesus, the risen one, has found us. The house is not empty. You have a place. You have a home. He is always with you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you that you love us and that you so love us that you have not only secured a future home for us in a resurrected world, but that you are offering a present home for us in union with the Trinity. That even now, through the Spirit, we can receive the gift of the very presence of the Father and the Son through the Spirit dwelling with us in our everyday life. Help us to reject the lie that we are alone and to live instead in the truth that you are always us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.